I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. Brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. Nearly half of all rural Americans don't have access to broadband internet, the high-speed connection many of us take for granted. In 65 counties across Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia, the majority of residents don't have access to broadband. That's one quarter of all the counties in those three states. Benny Becker reports that some rural communities are banding together to get connected. Jamelia Lewis lives in the mountains of Letcher County, Kentucky. It's a place with a strong sense of heritage. This is the house where I grew up. Lewis has stayed home to help take care of her parents. She's had a hard time finding work because there's something missing. I was actually offered a job where I could work from home, but there's no internet. The lack of internet has made homework a challenge for Lewis's children, especially for her younger son, who's visually impaired. The school has loaned him an iPad that he can use to zoom in on the text in his assignments. But he can't do that here because we don't have any internet at all. I feel like he's getting left behind, and that's not fair. Tina Sparkman lives nearby on a farm that's been in the family for generations. Her family's only choice is satellite internet, which isn't very reliable. On a good day, you can watch a three-minute video if you let it buffer for maybe ten minutes. And if the wind's blowing, the satellite isn't working. (laughs) Sparkman worries about what will happen after her son finishes college. My children won't come back here to live if things don't change. Our heritage will die here with my generation. There are about 600 homes in the area that don't have any options for broadband internet service. In rural communities, that's not so unusual. The latest federal data shows that nearly half of all Americans living in rural areas don't have access to broadband internet. In Kentucky, state officials have been pushing to expand broadband access for years. Eastern Kentucky, long known for coal mining, is represented by Congressman Hal Rogers, who hopes the internet can help the area rebrand. Silicon Holler. Rogers has worked with two Kentucky governors on a project called Kentucky Wired, which would build a fiber optic network across the state. The Eastern Kentucky section was scheduled to go online in 2016, but the state is still working to get the rights it needs to hang cables on utility poles. And here's one more reason not to hold your breath. The network won't connect directly to anyone's home. Letcher County and four of its neighbors have teamed up to make a plan for how to get homes connected. A consultant, Eric Mills, told the group they should expect a cost of $40,000 a mile to install a fiber optic network. It's expensive, but it's essential. And as a region, we can't afford not to get there. Letcher County seems to have taken that message to heart. The county government created a broadband board made up of volunteers from the community. When the board met in Line Fork, Jamelia Lewis, Tina Sparkman, and dozens of other residents were there. Board member Harry Collins tried to get the crowd excited. This group can bring you the information highway, and that's what we're here to do. The board announced that they were applying for a $1.5 million federal grant to install broadband internet in Line Fork, Kentucky. In West Virginia, a new law was just put in place that seems to build on some of the lessons learned in Kentucky. It was introduced by Delegate Roger Hanshaw. I represent Clay, Calhoun, and Gilmer counties. One part of the new law aims to prevent delays when trying to get access to utility poles. Another section encourages West Virginia communities to band together, so that they can apply for federal money. Support for this was incredible because the members talk every day to the small business owners who are having trouble processing credit cards. It may still be years before these communities get access to broadband internet, but in places like Line Fork where people are coming together, hope is within reach. I'm just hoping my little boy can get his education. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Benny Becker in Whitesburg, Kentucky. The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. Hello and welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and I'm really excited to be in the studio live and in person today with some very special folks in preparation for an art exhibit over in Wise County that is titled, What About Us? An Examination of Art from Isolation. The exhibit is striving to show how similar 
both Native American art and Appalachian art can be in the approach and the thoughts, as well as how both of those genres of art are moving forward into modernity. So I'm here in the studio with co-curator of the exhibit and Apple Shop and Roadside Theater alum Ron Short and also with Zuni artist Edward Waymatewa, also an Appalachian artist from, where are you from, Kelsey? Um, from Coburn, Virginia. From Coburn, Virginia, Kelsey McKay-Hill. And Edward and Kelsey both will have art featured in the exhibit, as well as Crystal Wilcutts Cole. So welcome, all of you, to Mountain Talk. We are looking at what causes people to create art. We look at some of the earliest art on the walls of caves. I think it was in France they found the earliest cave paintings. We've been creating images of our surroundings, of our experience, who knows, maybe since we've existed. What drives people to make art and, and what are we seeing in terms of the art movements in Appalachia, in the various Native American cultures across the U.S.? To me, art is just a way to understand your world. It's just kind of like a philosophy with medium. Um, I think it's just something innate with humans as we try to understand everything around us. I think that's a very good point. It's a very valid point. I can relate to it from that perspective as well. When I paint, I isolate myself. I literally sometimes have to um, harness the time, lock the doors, and just wallow in that <laughs> creative mode. A lot of things happen when you close the door, you confine yourself to this creativity because um, I think for one, as a community leader, as a tribal leader, both elected and also just as um, activists, I find that sometimes you cannot really communicate or, or find a forum where there is that rich dialogue. And when I confine myself, I can process what I'm trying to say and the art, the stories, sometimes song, they help me interpret what needs to be said and what actions need to be planned out. So art is more than just looking at something pretty. <laughs> art can be about something very wicked. You'll see in my artwork that some of the paintings are a little a little cold and I'm just basically painting on canvas the experiences that I feel emotionally, just the criticism and just the way that our indigenous spirit as Zuni people have been crushed. And so art can be beautiful in many ways, compositionally, in color, and so on, but art can be very dark, but nonetheless, it's still art. I think it probably, you know, from, uh, in terms of being an artist, uh, writing and theater and music uh, have been central in, in my life. I don't have the gift, the Holy Ghost breath. We all have different gifts. We all are gifted. We just all have different gifts. It just takes us sometimes a lifetime find it, I think even though, as Edward said, art can be terrible, there is a terrible beauty to it. In the same way that I believe that the first person was looking for beauty. I really believe that we need beauty in our lives because sometimes life can be rough, you know, and searching for that beauty I think produces art. But that product does not have to be a flower or a child's mm -hmm. face or, you know, those those big-eyed children, you know, that everybody loved, it can be terribly beautiful. It can cause us to have to examine things in a way that we never ever thought about before. And in doing that, we learn. And learning is beautiful. It is what keeps us going. And it is what it contributes to uh, the advancement of civilization. Not just art as a byproduct, but it, it fits into the whole of helping us move forward as a civilization. You know, and one of the interesting things is now they're saying that they now believe that wasn't hunters. It wasn't them talking about, I killed this and I killed that, that many of the paintings were done by women. Wow. On the walls in France and in Spain, they're now 
saying they, they think that many of those paintings were done by women. It was a way of expressing a world that they didn't participate in fully, but they saw around them, you know. So it was a way for them to become hunters in a way. They, you know, it, it allowed them to participate in that process. I found that really interesting that now talking about that possibility. One of the reasons is they're talking about is that some of the hands, you know, that we see on walls are so small that they couldn't be fully grown men. Even though they were smaller at that time, they would either be children or women. And they're pretty sure that it was women. I feel like another big thing with art, too, and this is something that I've also dealt with with the series that's going to be on display in WAS, is you can capture emotions that don't necessarily have a definition to them, um, that are really ambiguous, that you can't, you know, just can't put your finger on, and they're just almost too abstract to explain, and, and really multifaceted, you know, with like tragic beauty, as what was said earlier, that just can't be all put in one little happy flower picture, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Uh, my primary medium as an artist is words. Mm. And there have definitely been some experiences that I've had that I failed to be able to attach words to. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I could think to express that would be through images. There are limits, I think, to every medium. And mm. the title of this exhibit really strikes me, Art from Isolation. Growing up as an artist, growing up as someone who wanted to be a writer mm -hmm. as a career, and from other people that I've been around who grew up wanting to be artists as their career of whatever sort, whether it be music, uh, painting, what have you, a lot of our elders would tell us that we would need to leave here mm -hmm. or we would have to have a real job and do that as our hobby in order to make it. And it would always really upset me because I would see the art that they created every day. The difference being utilitarian, quilting, for example, or basket making or whittling, things that my elders didn't necessarily see as art, but as something that they had to do, but that they put creativity into it. Maybe we can talk about what does it mean to create art in isolation? What does it mean to paint a picture as opposed to create a quilt that has a use? Edward? I've struggled with the differences presented to me in college. One department was referred to as a crafts shop, while the other department was the fine arts department. I was in both areas and I really had a problem discerning what the issue was. Going back to your comment about what is art? What are crafts? I think that sometimes we fail to see that the art is actually on a piece of pot, for example. They're judging the pot as being a work of a craftsman, but that's really not the intent. It's the design, the, the paintings on the pot that is the art. So I want to use that perspective and I'll make a reference to my culture. We are known as Zuni people, but the name that we have for ourselves, we call ourselves Ashwi. We are Ashwi. In going back to pottery as a very favorite medium, interesting forms, very delicate forms, very compositionally sound pottery, but when you look into the, uh, the paintings, my ancestors were ahead of their time in many ways because our modern children they try to duplicate they try to mimic the designs and the comment that I used uh, some years back to describe the paintings of the pottery some of the symbols are called the rain cloud the thunderbird design these designs have all the elements of a painting they have all the elements of design I've learned not to look at the pottery form but that the pottery form was basically a canvas for somebody to come in painting. And the reason why I refer to my ancestors as ahead of their time was because they created such beautiful abstract images of the Matsaki design of the Thunderbird. These are very abstract symbols, very gorgeous. 
And so that's why I say they were ahead of their time. And on that same note, I want to say that I work with a charter school in East LA called Anahuacamecac. A lot of the students there are from Mexico. There are peoples from Mayan, peoples from Nahuatl, peoples from Huichol. As an Ashwi member from a tribe in New Mexico, our stories tell us about our connection in the place called the Place of Forever Summer, which means the South. Our biggest clan in our tribe is a macaw, a macaw parrot. In New Mexico, there's no macaw parrots. But in our migration story, that's one big clue that we come from the south, bringing the macaw parrot egg. And so our biggest clan is a macaw. Our first high priest was of the macaw parrot clan. And so these are answers to when we raise the question about our migration. So there's answers embedded in our migration stories. And the reason why I mentioned the Mayan, the Nahuatl peoples, they come from a culture that has deep roots from where the corn was birthed. As indigenous peoples, we birthed the corn. And so that's the common bond that we have as indigenous peoples of the greater Southwest U.S. The reason why I bring it up is that now that I know what I know, it helps me understand our art. It helps me understand how we see art not as crafts or not as fine arts, but that they're interwoven. It's not an ego thing but that it's it's a higher order, it's a higher level of understanding that connects how we see land, how we translate into word, how it translates into visual aspects, even song and ceremony. And so I tell my students that remember, if we sometimes find ourselves struggling academically or being confined into an institution where we're forced to do things, we have to think about where we come from. Our ancestors came from a very deep and rich culture where there was writing. There was a lot of symbolism. There was paintings in the caves, like in Copolio, there was this famous cave that has its painting in rich pigments. And also in terms of writing, a lot of the artistic symbols were used to write, to communicate. And so we come from that culture. And so I have to remind them that it's a part of us to write. There's that innate need to communicate, whether it's visual or, or whether it's symbolism, but the idea behind it is to communicate and to pass on this knowledge. So again, going back to, in terms of my work that's going to be represented in the gallery show, you'll see that my art is really not fine arts. If we're going to separate or distinguish what is fine arts versus craft, I will say that I will only have literally one piece of work that will be one painting. Rest of it, they're drawing. Because with the limited time that I have to produce this work, I choose to use graphite, graphite and oils. Because again, going back to a definition of painting, when I do a painting, it takes me about three or four months. And I just don't have the time with the work that I do as a storyteller and as an educator. It's just so many things need to be done from my perspective, or at least from my feeling. By the way, I'm so honored to be here. I'm so honored that I am given a forum where I will show my work and be able to talk about my work. And again, I just want to say that some of the work might be offensive, but it helps us look at our past. I come from, as an indigenous person, as a Native American of the United States, our life, our history has been such a struggle. At some point, we got to say that enough of showing these pretty stuff. Let's talk about the real issues that we struggled with yesterday and issues that we're struggling today. And I see that here in the Appalachian Mountains. When I was growing up here in the mountains some time ago, and I think it's true for even, and I hate to think that it is true for Kelsey's generation, I literally was informed from every direction in order to be the best that you can be. You have to leave here mm -hmm. to be it. You start out in isolation sometimes because of where we live. We talk about living up the hollers. Well, I literally lived up the holler. Creek running by the whole thing. So many people do live here, and they lived in isolation, in, in just geographic isolation. But we were connected through uh, all the mediums that were available to us as well as they were the rest of the world. 
But for me, I, w- I had hoped that we would learn in order to be the best that we can be, we have to create an environment here that allows us to be the best that we can be. We have to create that environment here. We have to make it happen. Because I wonder, Kelsey just, I'd be interested to hear her speak to this because she just graduated from one of our local institutions of higher education, the University of Virginia Wise, which was the old Prince Valley College. That's now UVA Wise, its purpose. They, they, they would like you to think that it has a heightened purpose because now it's connected to this large university. So I would ask her about how does she feel about as an artist living here and but still receiving a kind of uh, mainstream education. But did that education, did it encourage her to be an artist here and living in this this kind of cultural isolation that we all live in here? And it's not anymore. We all have internet. We all have all those connections. So what is it that creates that isolation? I'd be interested to hear her talk from that perspective, being a young person growing up here. I feel like what creates the most isolation here is the lack of resources. I went to Irvington High School, which no longer exists um, in North Virginia, and I took one art class that entire time I was there, and I was an art major in college. That was the only teacher I ever had conflict with because she was wanting us to create barns and pretty things, and I was like, no, I want to create. I always had a fascination with like nudes and anatomy and stuff, so that was controversial. Um, but I didn't have hardly any art classes, like I said, in high school. And then when I went to college, you know, that was a very good experience. But even now with my job, I work as a Van Gogh instructor through the William King Museum of Art in Abingdon. Basically, the Van Gogh program just goes to all of the public schools in Southwest Virginia. So I go to schools in Buchanan, Lee, Dickinson, and Wise County. Maybe 50%, if that, of the schools even have art classes at all. And there's so many kids that I I teach these classes to. They're only little 90-minute classes about three times a year. So it's still very scarce. But I see these kids that have so much potential, and they don't even know it. They have no idea. I even had one boy ask me, eight years old, how much do you make? How much money do you make? Because my dad, I want to be an artist, and my dad said that I need to make money. And I feel like that's a big thing with Appalachian peoples and maybe even indigenous cultures is they're so focused on survival and just making it. Um, There's so much poverty that they, stuff like that, and and I hate to put it in this way, but almost seems like art and creativity seems frivolous. And I don't like to think of it that way, but a lot of the people in this area does um, or do. And I've thought many times about moving I thought about moving to the West Coast or even just to Asheville. I've dreamed a lot about it. But then at the same time, I feel like in a way it's my duty to help preserve creativity in this area because if no one does, or if even just a few people do, it's not going to survive. My experience with art was very similar. The way that I was taught to appreciate art was very similar to that as well. And I did leave for seven years. I lived in Louisville. Mm. And for me, that was huge, a huge move. And I think talking about isolation, in my mind, the biggest factor is the poverty. So many of us will never travel outside of Appalachia, let alone to any major city in the United States. The only way that we have to interact with so many different cultures is television. We may never meet anyone who is vastly different from us our entire lives. So thinking about how much of our world we really do understand and how important we feel our place in that world is. I think one of the important things for us to understand living here is that other people are just as isolated as we are. The Chicago knows as little about us as we know about them. Uh, they would come down here and probably feel the same confusion in some ways <laughs> that, that you, you do. I mean, I really, I've, I know of this from traveling and being in many, many places all over the world 
you know. I've spent a lot of time in New York City, you know. I still look at myself always, have always, no matter where I've been, I still remember myself as that, that little boy up on that holler, you know. That's who I am. I, I, and what I've tried to do is grow, but never leave that place in my mind. That's my place of, of identity. But the thing that I learned, the thing that I learned that was most important is that in America, we know so little about each other. That color can throw the whole thing into a despair. Or There are so many uh, things we just don't know. And, and what happens is the differences are what stick out rather than the things that should bind us together. Again, I think from traveling, the biggest thing for me was not that I knew that I was going to overcome all those boundaries and overcome all those things. I can't go to New York City or Roadside can't go to New York City for a month and change New York City. There's no way. But what I do is I come home a changed person. I come home changed from my point of view of who I am and where I am. And it helps me to even better appreciate my place here. In spite of all the problems, in spite of all those things, what it does is help me grow as a person, as an artist. And if I can continue to do that, then I can continue to express myself and make those connections and point out those differences and help people to understand that the gulf between those differences is not so great that it can't be overcome by dialogue, writing, art. That's what helps us to see. We're not going to all travel to Chicago, but if they can see Kelsey's paintings, if they could see her work that she's produced or Edward's work that he's produced, we would learn so much more about where, who those people are. They might say, I had no idea that they could do that over there. That may sound condescending or even prejudiced, but when you don't know, you don't know. Now, there is such a thing as premeditated ignorance. We're seeing it all over the world today. You know, it's demonstrated every day on the television. That's when people just decide, I don't care what the truth is, I'm just going to ignore it. But I think with art, if Edward does not show that side of his culture that we think about that is not just what our opinion of what he should be doing is, we will never see that. We will never, ever see that. This show, I want to say right off the bat, it may be PG-13, but it's not R. It's not, it's, but, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that the first form of art was the human body. That's what artists studied from the beginning. Every, even, everything you look at was the study of that movement, muscles. Uh, da Vinci took it apart so he could, layer by layer he could see how the, the motion of the body, which was the most marvelous thing that there is. And artists have revealed that to us. And, and it doesn't matter if you're, if you're living in Coburn, if you're living in Zuni, if you're living uh, in, in Duffield where I live, we as Artists can create work that speaks to a larger population, to much bigger population than one we even where we live. But we do have to overcome, in our own community, where we live here in Appalachia, we have to learn so we can overcome these cultural prejudices that says, my grandma used to talk about, for her, her favorite expression was, thick as fiddlers in hell. <laughs> that gives you some idea of what she thought about musicians, and she did. She she worried to death about me that I was a musician. That I was. Oh, honey, are you still doing that? I'm sure that. I have, oh, are you still trying to be an artist? Kelsey's right. If we don't teach ourselves first, we're never going to be able to reach out to the world. We have to overcome that where we live. If we don't have artists in this place, that's going to keep us from progressing as much as the economy is keeping us from progressing. If we can't be creative and move forward with open and creative minds, uh, you know, and we depend on somebody always for the almighty dollar, and it's always somebody else, it's never us. If we always depend on those people to provide for us and to do everything for us, even create our art for us, which is not, television is not art. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, I can explain the difference if you really want to talk about it. But if we accept those things, those is pop music, or we are limiting ourselves as a culture, mm -hmm. we have to overcome the isolation ourselves because most of that isolation is created by our own minds. We create as many problems for ourselves as we do solutions, and until we reverse that, 
we're going to have problems. And it's not just going to be about the, the coal economy or the timber economy or the internet economy or whatever. We have to value ourselves and, and we have to, we have to uh, value people who are artists because otherwise how are we ever going to see ourselves? I think one of the um, most interesting dialogue that I had um, was uh, with Mr. Ron Short. This was around 1980. But one of the earliest conversations that we had was about place, about land, about Mother Earth. And today, that knowledge is so critical to understand the landscape, to understand cultural resources, natural resources. Those are common stories in our migration stories, in our cultural stories. Those are common themes, and uh, they're very important, more so now, because I think when the resources are being removed from the reservation, when resources are being removed from Appalachia, not only is, is the natural resources being removed, but the knowledge behind the resources. Our river died out. Our Zuni River used to flow. A hundred years ago, it was flowing all the time. It was big, it was rich. I mean, we had all kinds of wildlife, birds, animals, even gardens. But as of 30, 50, 30 or 50 years ago, our river is dead. Just a river corridor that's filled with weeds, no wetland plants. Of course, our gardening, our agricultural economy has died out. Livestock, they're disappearing. So when we talk about the landscape, I'm not only talking about the landscape. When I tell my stories, I say these are the plants that are associated with water. Nobody talks about the names of the wetland plants anymore. Nobody talks about the different corn. Nobody talks about the technical words of erosion or what is a healthy ecological land base. So in our language, those words are dying out. And so for me, it's so critical to be telling stories about once existed and what we might do now to maintain the values, our core values about supporting good minds, good heart, good ecological land base. But more and more it's getting so hard because a lot of our youth, a lot of our minds are being diverted from external forces. And so that's why I say that in, in a way my, my painting has taken a back seat because when I got out of school, I was at UNM, University of New Mexico, in, in the art program. But when I got out of that program, I changed my focus from visual art to performing arts, through storytelling, because one of the reasons was that language was disappearing. I still speak the language, but the language was disappearing. Our children were less interested in our native tongue. And so I said, we have to tell stories to try to make our children, our community, appreciate storytelling. And so also, too, is to make sure that the technical words, that there's this technical level of the understanding of our worlds is alive. If our language dies out, we won't understand the world that our ancestors lived because within their world, they knew about plants. They knew about water. They knew about surviving on this desert landscape my peoples. The central grain is corn. We're connected to the south and in the south that's where the corn was birthed. Corn feeds the whole world and so I am very proud of that. My indigenous brothers and sisters from Mayan, Nahuatl, Huichol, these are something that was a gift just like an art. We appreciate the water seed. We appreciate the grain seeds, the cone seeds, the grass seeds. Art is, is a blessing. Art is a seed in itself. And so when we talk about isolation, yes, we're in an isolated landscape, but it's a landscape that is not isolated. There had been these deep cultures that walked the land. There were these deep cultures that traversed the greater Southwest. And it wasn't the Mexico or it wasn't the U.S., there was no border. And so now when we talk about the border, it's like it's an insult to those indigenous peoples that traverse the lands, these rich cultures that exist. And so 
when we say that if we support the border as a Zuni person, as, as a deep culture that came from the South, my history is and prehistory is, is being cut with a butcher knife. It's just being chopped off and I cannot accept that, especially as an artist, as an activist. That's why I speak of an ancient time where we were one and we are still one. Those lines that Edward was talking about, uh, those lines in the sand or whatever, they were created for different reasons, you know, largely economic uh, reasons. And I think that's the thing that I'm, I'm talking about from what we as a, a culture that curiously is isolated to. We, uh, some people say that we live on an energy reservation in some ways. That we, we've been, Appalachia especially, central Appalachia has, the coal fields has be, been declared by many writers as an energy reservation, very similar in terms of policies and, and, and treatment and uh, uh, political uh, responses uh, to the problems uh, of central Appalachia. And now those problems are very, very much similar. I don't want to just focus on the problems. I don't want to focus on the fact that we have the highest drug rates here in Appalachia and on the reservations than any place else in the world, the lowest incomes. The fact that any of our culture at all survives, the fact that Native people survive in this country is in itself a pretty much of a miracle. They were put on reservations, not because for the best for them, they were put on reservations to die out. That was the intention. And in some cases, again, because Central Appalachia has been an energy reservation. All of our natural resources have gone to fuel the rest of the world's economy. And we were here simply, largely, to produce those resources, to, to mine those resources, to uh, uh, cut the timber, to even the water is beginning to be used. We're going to have problems with that. Our friends out in, in Standing Rock are not the only people we're going to have problems with their water. The Zuni River disappeared. They've been there for how many thousand years? and it's gone because of uses and practices and damming and people are more important than the people who own the river. You know, who owns the water? Who owns the coal? Who owns the timber? You know, right now it's land rights. But what happens to the people caught up in that struggle, all we're trying to do here is we're allowing those people, our people, through Kelsey, and to represent our people here. Edward represents all those many people he talks about in his work. Crystal is doing the same thing, you know, as a member of Standing Rock. Recently, her family's come face to face with that reality, that the resource is more important than the people. And any time you have an economy or a, po a political system which values resources more than it values the people, you, you are going to be demeaned and used. And that's why we have to be strong in the face of that. We have to save ourselves. Nobody is going to do it for us. We have to express ourselves. We have to produce our own music, our own arts. We have to have our own voices. And if we don't, we, I keep using that capital, we, us. What about us? If we don't grasp that and own it, we're going to continue to be used. We're going to have to stop just blaming ourselves for the sh shape that we're in. You know, we're go going to have to get over the idea uh, that because somebody lives in Chicago, they're better than us. When I was a little boy, I thought the whole world was my front porch. You look out in the yard and, geez, uh, I, mean, that's a, I don't know if I'm going to go out there or not. Then I ventured down to my grandma's, you know, which is down the creek. And, phew, that's a big old world out there. You know, finally I went to the mouth of the holler. Oh, my goodness sakes. There's a big road out here. It's people driving by in cars. Jesus, running high. Yeah. And then when I went, went up on the hill and I looked and I could see all of it. I could see my house and my grandma's house all the way down the river. I'm thinking, whoo, what a big world this is. What happened was, guy went up in a rocket. We looked back. We saw how big a world it was. Now, you show me on that map of where every man in space looked back at that world, that one spot that's more important than another spot. We looked at the, the world. We saw that... There is no place, there was no star here and there and there and there. This is the world we all inhabit. We own it equally. We own equally a share in that world. For us to give that up easily, if we disappear, if the Zuni people disappear, it will be because they've given up being who they are. They've given up on that. 
that's why we have to continue to produce art in the face of all of these reasons why you shouldn't. Because it's not just an expression of the artist. It is necessary for the whole of society to see and recognize itself in relation to something that may be totally different than anything they've ever experienced. That's what art does. It forces us out of that comfort zone. You know, it causes us to be better than we think we can be. In the struggle at Standing Rock, you know, they fight, well, it was the water protectors. I was out there in September. It was um, a week after the dogs had been released on the people, the indigenous peoples. It was amazing what artists, activists, throughout the international community do. Everybody from the international community, they came, they supported Standing Rock because we cannot deny the fact, especially in this date and time, that agua is vida, water is life, mini wichoni, water is life. We've got to make sure that that resource is not commodified. It's got to be a human right. More and more, I think when we talk about isolating communities, isolating peoples, the, the intent of this powerful, greedy voice is to crush the little peoples. Yes, we work in isolation, but we're interpreting to the world through our art, through our song, on what we see. As artists, we feel, we're emotional sometimes, but we see. We listen to our ancestor philosophies, the philosophy about what is Mother Earth, the concepts about water, the concepts about where our spirit goes after death. So we cannot discount the knowledge of the ancestors, the layers and layers of concepts of water, of land, of relationships. When we start to see Standing Rock, what it symbolized, Standing Rock was hope because many strangers, people of different colors, even what they were called privileged white children being there to take on some of the burn that befalled on Standing Rock. But there were some incredible indigenous leaders out there. When I was out there, there was Ecuadorians. There were people from Colombia. Later on, my own friends from the Mari, from Australia. And these other people came from great densities to go there. But one thing I can tell you, when there's a congregation of good minds, good hearts, and genuine intent to protect, there was an unbelievable valley filled with spirituality. When I came over into that valley, crossed the Cannon uh, River onto the camp, I could not believe the power, the, the energy, this the spiritual energy. So I believe that with the coming of peoples, with good hearts, good minds, and genuine intent, that powerful things could happen. We could save the world. We could save the water. It's crazy, too, to me that the concept of, of water as life has become politicized and I guess just living in a capitalist nation that happens. But it's almost, it seemed as radical. And that's, I can't comprehend it. But so many places that are off to themselves, like Appalachia or the indigenous cultures, the only exposure that a lot of people have is through mainstream media which is so filtered and they're only getting what is sensationalized really because they need to have commercials they need to have viewers that's exactly why and if we are not out there as activists or artists or just independent people showing the world really how it is and really what what morality should be nobody's going to do it we have to be our own God, I guess. <laughs> and one of the um, amazing things, I mentioned that I, was, I work at LA. I've been an advisor to a charter school, Anahuacamecac. But this past school year, I was there as a theater person. But during the struggle to stop Dakota Access Pipeline, I was very amazed that the Los Angeles City Council, they supported our struggle. And if there's anybody that should be given credit is uh, the Los Angeles City Council. They approved a city council resolution supporting Standing Rock. 
no DAPL, no Dakota Access Pipeline. And so for the city of LA to take ac action, it makes us believe, because I think sometimes as indigenous peoples, as peoples of color, as peoples like Appalachian people being isolated and being disowned by the greater world, I should say the greater white world, then we have to say that we're looking for that opportunity where there's got to be some seed of hope. And I think through Standing Rock, there was that seed of hope because many communities, both indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, people of color, coming together. And so there's this international voice and we have to believe that now is the time to create that dialogue. You're going to see products of, of, of artists. I mean, if you come to the show, you know, to the gallery, and, it's, and I hope you will, because we're going to run this extra long period of time. It's actually going to run from June 11th, which is the opening, where you can meet the artists and, and, and talk to them about their work. And we also want to have a conversation with people who come, and we're going to do that there as well. Uh, we're hoping that uh, folks from AMI will come, some of the young people will come and film this conversation so we'll have it for uh, all kinds of weight uses. You know, but the fact that we're sitting here talking on the radio, on WMMT, the fact that WMMT exists proves that we can produce things in our own community and that reach out to people. In the same way that Roadside long ago, many years ago, started talking to Edward about producing theater from a, a culture that that shies away from being on stage, shies away from being spotlighted, you know. But we produced the first Zuni language play, the first. We produced a book together uh, that combines the stories and the artwork and the Zuni language. We can make things, we have things, products. We can produce products, not just, it's not just air in our head. It's not just dreams and, and daydreams, but you have to dream. Otherwise, you, you, we are stuck. You know, you, you have to want to rise, always rise, always rise. But, but, but we do have to believe in ourselves strongly enough to say, you know, why is God going to help us? You know, if we come down to that. Because we have to take some responsibility for for creating the environment where we can be helped, you know? I think it's really easy to become apathetic, especially when you're off to yourself like that. And I think that's what causes a lot of issues with the opioid epidemic and people just waiting for another coal mine to open and so the good times can be back again. And they, they don't see any other future. They just are sitting waiting around for the rich people to come back to save us. And who knows if that's ever going to happen. <laughs> If you have the problem, you have to solve it. Mm -hmm. Only you are interested in solving that problem because it's your problem. And so I tried, but the truth is, is that we all know that the problems of the world are sometimes so big we just seem drowned in it. What we want to do is rise above those problems and show that we can create art in that environment, show that we are capable of rising above that and to produce young artists like Kelsey, who has every reason in the world not to be an artist. Yeah, you have to have bread, and you have to, maybe today you have to earn money to have bread. Even the word bread means, you know. But I think that if we don't have that balance, we just eat light bread till we get fat, and that ain't gonna do nobody no good, you know. So, I think one of the um, most interesting things that gelled within I'm, I'm going to talk about Standing Rock again because I think it was very symbolic in a sense that it brought indigenous peoples together. It brought indigenous from the U.S. as well as the international indigenous communities coming together. There was this narrative about making a statement about how precious water was and other resources, including children. In this period, there was this dialogue. And in fact, one of the murals that I will have featured in the um, gallery show this next two months was featured at uh, the World Indigenous Law Conference, and I saw Chase Ironize. Chase Ironize is a young attorney from Standing Rock, and he, he had been imprisoned, and um, you know he's being tailed. He's struggling. He's he's very intelligent, very articulate, but 
what's going to happen? They're going to start targeting strong indigenous leaders. Whether you do, did something wrong or not, you're going to be targeted. There was many narratives. There was many narratives about what Standing Rock was about. There were some things that were good, some things that weren't so good, but nonetheless, there was indigenous peoples from throughout the country. I'm talking about U.S. Throughout the country, there was this dialogue. And the paradigm has changed where now it's about unity. It's about one indigenous man seeing another indigenous man and embracing each other, rather acknowledging each other and just walking away. It doesn't happen anymore. It didn't happen this time. But the beauty of it was that indigenous peoples start to see each other, embrace each other, and start engaging in healthy conversation. I think just that symbol needs to live on. And that's why I bring up the subject about Standing Rock. And thank you for introducing the uh, event because for us it's very important. There's a lot of hope in it. Having been to Standing Rock, having met so many very strong leaders, indigenous leaders with good mind, good heart, the dialogue is still continuing. In the LA area, there are many indigenous peoples, a lot of clan mothers, elderly women, who take the front stand. They open ceremonies. They open dialogue. They're recognized. So there's this greater movement. It really brought this consciousness, consciousness in an international level. And the question is, where does it go? As an artist, or as I should say, as artists, we need to continue that dialogue. We might not be totally involved in the Standing Rock dialogue, but nonetheless, our voices are out there we feel like we know what needs to be protected, what needs to be passed on. And oftentimes we created indigenous knowledge, ancestor knowledge. One of the people, one of the artists that is going to be a part of this exhibit has a unique view of things because she is a Lakota woman and a member of the Standing Rock Reservation. Her name is Crystal Wilcutts Cole. She lives in Big Stone Gap. She married a man. Who, who's from here. So this is a Lakota woman from Standing Rock who's living in Big Stone Gap and, and continuing to produce art. She's also a writer, uh, a very good writer. You know, she is she is like said, trying to find a place, a voice uh, that uh, allows for her to continue to be a member. doesn't matter if she's living there or not. She's living in Big Stone Gap, but it's as equally important to her as it should. You know, people say, well, I don't live there. This doesn't it's not about it's not about living there. The issue is what's the question. It's what's important. So Crystal has a unique view of that, though, and I think having her as a part of this is going to be uh, very interesting to, to hear her speak about this kind of dual roles. I don't know if she's hillbilly yet or not, but you know she <laughs> she, she will be before long if she lives here long enough. It's like the little Mexican kids at the restaurant in Big Stone Gap. They now speak Spanish with a hillbilly accent. It's the most the funniest thing you ever heard. <laughs> hey, me go. It's like a, <laughs> But anyway, that's what happens I mean, when there's that blending of things, you know, people, these lines disappear, I think. And that's what we want art to do is to help us erase some of these lines, that the artificial lines that separate us. Somebody might say, well, that's pretty pretentious to to be doing this in, in wise at a small gallery. It's not at all. It's, it's where the work needs to be in small galleries all over every place in America, you know. It, you, we shouldn't have to go to New York City <laughs> to see art or, you know, or Washington, D.C. or we need to to produce it for ourselves and to be able to, to see it and appreciate it. Uh, co-curator is Lisa Davis, and Lisa is an artist who wanted to teach art in the schools, uh, but she's not teaching art. Uh, even though they hired her as an art teacher, she's teaching one class of art. She's doing everything else, forensics, theater, everything has to do with, quote, art. One even big though basket. She, even though she, yeah, she said... She has some experience in theater, but she does not have a degree in theater. She has a degree in art, you know, and so she's doing everything that the school considers to be. This is our part of our artistic voice. You they know? can just pay one person to get and, it all done. Well, that, that, yeah, but but for her, she's curating this museum because she wants she wants to be an artist. She wants to to communicate with artists, other artists. And so that's one of the reasons she took this chore on, this this job. She's doing it, you know, year-round, not just this one exhibit. But that's another example of we have to reach out 
to each other and create these larger places of dialogue. And I really hope that people will come um, to this event. It's, it's June 11th, and it will be from 2 to 5 in the afternoon. After church, you can go have lunch or somewhere and then come on up uh, and look at all the paintings that, that are hung and talk to the artists. And then at 3 o'clock, we're going to have a conversation with the people who are there who want to come for that dialogue. You can come at 2 and stay, or you can, can come at 3 and just to be a part of the dialogue and, and look at the art. But we really do want to have another dialogue, you know, like we've been having much bigger, give everybody a chance to speak to what some of the questions we've been talking about here. Then we will have three artists, it will be Edward Wimatiwa and Kelsey McKay-Hale and Crystal Wilcox-Cole. It'll be something you've not seen before. It's going to be the kind of work that, like, like you were saying, Kelly, it's a, a chance once, you know, you're having a chance to meet and talk with someone different, to see work that you would never see uh, and an opportunity to be a part of a conversation that you might not think you could ever have here and, and living in the isolation of Appalachia. You know, um, we want to break down that isolation. We want to begin to communicate with each other. And so, so that's, that's why we're doing it. And we thank Apple Shop and Mountain Talk for allowing us to have that opportunity to speak to the larger community because this radio station is a part of that. You know, it's part of that work that begun is by people. Uh, it's part of the work of the ancestors, you know, and, and, and because at some point in time, we're going to be the ancestors. And what do we leave? What, what kind of message do we leave those who come after us? And I'm not just talking about uh, having our personal legacy. I'm talking about a, a cultural legacy. What do we leave that will, that will help uh, the next generations, not just the next generation, but generations uh, uh, to follow, you know, and uh, I think it's that's a question that we as artists have to ask ourselves, why, and that's why we produce art. I guess on a personal note, I like to comment that through our art, we go through a healing process. Once we connect with our being, and we've evaluated and reevaluated our own positions, our our misfortunes, our losses, but we have to strive to, to create a better world that we begin to talk about and envision what is a better world. Because I think we have to think about generations to come and speak for those who can't or those animals that can't speak for themselves. So I think in order to be a community leader, we have to come to our own means and to heal. And so that whatever we do, whatever we say, we do not create any more damage or we do not hurt other peoples and or hurt our communities. So it's not just about self, but it's about what is it that we see for a healthy community? What is it that we see for a balance of ecology? How is it that we protect the rivers and the waters? Because we want money, but we can't put money above people. I would just really encourage for everyone to come out and to see the work and to be a part of this community. Of course we have government leaders that are supposed to represent us but in modern day we don't have as much representation as what we should. So look to your community leaders and look to the artists to to try to communicate for you if you feel like you don't have a voice. And come out and have the discussion with us and it can just give us all a little bit of a louder voice yeah and I just wanted to say I'm very grateful for being here and having this opportunity well I thank you all for joining me on mountain talk and I just want to tell the audience again that this art exhibit is a collaboration with Apple Shop Roadside Theater the Daniel Boone Wilderness Trail Association and it is located at the Charles W. Harris Art Gallery, which is a nonprofit self-supporting venue for visual artists that's located in the Wise County Public Library in Wise, Virginia. So totally accessible to anyone who is listening right now. Uh, you can be a part of this conversation and experience this work Sunday, June the 11th, 
at 2 p.m. the gallery opens and the work will be up throughout July and June as well and then we'll have a conversation with the artists and any community members that want to be involved from 3 to 5 on that same day June 11th so I want to thank Ron Short Edward Waymatewa and Kelsey McKay Hale for joining us on Mountain Talk Monday and I've been your host Kelly Haywood and have a wonderful evening.